September 23rd, and this is the Eye on College Basketball podcast. Yeah, I got Matt Norlander with me, and uh, big news this morning in college basketball. The reigning national champions are going to be without their highest-rated incoming recruit, namely Amari Spellman. Six-foot-nine big, uh, ruled ineligible academics uh, by the NCAA. Norlander, we'll just get right to it. Uh, you tell me, how big of a deal is this for uh, Jay Wright's attempt to repeat his Big East champions, repeat as national champions? Well, kudos on using reigning correctly because they are not the defending champions. Oh, that's they will not, it's my not, it's my biggest pet peeve. They will not lose their title when people they say will, defending def, the defending national champions or the defending World Series champions. Like no, like the Royals aren't gonna. When you defend something, you you're at risk of losing it. Like if you're a boxer and you defend your title, you might lose your title. But if right. you're like a World Series champion or in basketball a national champion, you're not defending anything. Once you win it, it's yours forever. You're the reigning national champions, not the defending national champions. That is correct. And so um, this is big enough to where I was considering putting – now, listen, would Spellman have been a top four player for Villanova this year? I don't think so. But he was obviously a critical piece inside. They do not have as much on the interior now. I was strongly considering picking Villanova to repeat. I probably won't do that now because I do think that he would mean that much to them on the interior. I still think they'll be a really good team. They've got plenty of pieces there. They're going to score. I would still narrowly have them over Xavier as the best team in the Big East. But this is important enough, and I thought Spellman was going to be a good enough player. It's funny. I was putting my my son down when you texted me uh, about – 25 minutes before we started this podcast and you just said like i'm gonna get a spellman headline and i thought uh, i'm guessing he's not gonna be eligible because i saw it like 10 minutes after you texted me and sure enough i saw the news that he's not going to be able to play um listen you know it helps villanova for down the road i mean they're gonna need some reinforcements for a year from now and that'll be good uh but then again spellman won't have a year's worth of experience under his belt anyway but uh, yeah, I think it's significant. I, I would say it's 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 worthy of just recalibrating what Villanova will be. This isn't a top fifty player in college hoops or anything, but I thought that he, specifically because they lose a Chafu GP and they needed some real beef on the inside. Now they don't have as much down there. I think it will have some impact. Well, that's the problem is that he was uh, you know on paper supposed to replace a senior who averaged like ten points, eight rebounds a game last year. Not not an All American, but a very good. Uh, or a very meaningful college basketball player uh, for a national championship team. And now they won't have that big body. And I don't even know that Spellman would have been as, as good as Daniel, uh, like long-term perhaps, but I don't know that Spellman next season, this season, would have been as good as, as Daniel was this past season. But he was still uh, important, and it probably puts a uh, tremendous amount of pressure on Daryl Reynolds to be uh, better than he's ever been. He played like 17 minutes a game last year. He was a role player. Um, didn't do much consistently. Um, but it is worth pointing out that when Ashefu was out uh, for, I think, three games last year, he averaged around 9 and 11. So when given a, a big opportunity, he did he did produce at a pretty decent rate. Um, but, but clearly, um, he should be your backup big, not your primary big. And so this is a 
not devastating blow to Villanova. I don't even know how much it'll make me change the top 25 and one. But uh, Villanova was going to be better with Amari Spellman than, than they're going to be without Amari Spellman. I think that's a pretty reasonable point of view. Yeah, I think so. And um, we'll see what else happens just in terms of other preseason teams. There's not a ton of eligibility issues out there. We usually have one or two. In some years, we actually get a handful of them. Um, not expecting a ton of that this year in terms of eligibility for guys. Spellman was one on a short list. And uh, so, yeah, certainly uh, some adjustment for Jay Wright going forward. Um, other big college basketball news this week, at least on the recruiting trail, and that, that's kind of all the big news you get. Um, Western Kentucky, uh, who had previously secured a commitment from Mitchell Robinson, who's a consensus top 10 player in America, almost certainly a one-and-done guy. We talked about him on this uh, podcast before. Uh, early in the week, uh, they get a commitment from a top 55 player, uh, Josh Anderson. And so that's Rick Stansberry. Um, recruiting to Western Kentucky in Conference USA with a recruiting class that right now ranks in the top 10 nationally. What do you make of this? I make of it that, uh, man, I, I make of it that it's similar and yet not to remember a few years back when Old Miss started. Now, granted, Old Miss is an SEC program, but Old Miss like brought in like a top five recruiting class in football. And, and football. a lot of people were yeah, and people are like, what is going on here? There's not so much a what is going on here matter of surprise with WKU because Stansberry has a reputation when it comes to recruiting. And listen, I, we can be fully transparent. When you mention on Twitter uh, Rick Stansberry's recruiting prowess, you get hit with your mentions, just natural presumptions of the ability for him to do this cannot fully be on the up and up. Now, there is no evidence to suggest otherwise. Okay? Oh, it's, it's – yeah, I mean, to your point, and, like, that's the thing. I don't want to dance around this. Like, that's why I brought it up on the podcast. Let's, like, talk about it honestly the way uh, – Yeah. You know, the, the way people do. When I tweet, uh, Rick Stansbury now has two top 55 national recruits committed to Western Kentucky, people retweet it, and they write the word Stansbury, and you know, they use a dollar sign where the S is. And and that and things like that. And to take it a step further, it's not just fans who do this. You know, our 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 good buddy Jeff Goodman, who works at ESPN, uh, you know, essentially called him a cheater on on Twitter. Like he said, uh, the smart money is always on Rick Stansberry when it comes to recruiting. Now I, I know that's not funny, but that's Goodman's attempt at a joke. So. I know, but he's also but he's also saying like he's also tweeting that. He's talking with yes. coaches going up against Stansbury in these recruiting battles. And basically, the minute they know that Stansbury is legitimately chasing a recruit, they're bowing out. Now, that is... Right. No, I mean, that's... Yeah, I mean... That, like... I mean, let, let's just lay it out here, okay? If if that is happening, and I have not spoken with a staff or a coach that... that I'm not saying that it's not happening. But if it is happening, like, that doesn't happen if you're in an honest-to-God, head-to-head natural recruiting battle it just, by reputation alone coaches don't just cede the recruiting territory to another coach you see what i'm saying sure i i, I will tell you and i'm not going to echo like again the only reason i think this we're talking about is because like a legitimate uh you know media member who works for a, a, a legitimate media outlet is 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 publicly saying these things and i will say that i talked to a coach a couple days ago uh and he said that they are right now um, recruiting a, 
you know, top 100, top 150 kid and that Western Kentucky is in there. And, you know, like, like it is it is something he's aware of, like under normal circumstances, he would not be concerned. This is a power conference guy under normal circumstances. He would not be concerned with Western Kentucky being in there. In fact, under normal circumstances, Western Kentucky wouldn't even be in there. And yet he's like, yeah, you know, it, it's uh, like we're trying to get it done. We're trying to block it off. We're trying to, uh, you know, make 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 sure, uh, you know, the right people are involved and the wrong people aren't. Uh, but uh, it was just, it was something. I mean, as long as we're speaking candidly, it was something that a coach brought up to me, you know, after. Western Kentucky got that commitment from Josh Anderson earlier this week. Like, yeah, they're probably going to get more. And, like, we're in there right now with with a kid, and we f- feel pretty good about it. But now Western Kentucky's in there, too, and you just don't know. And so, um, listen, I'll be honest. I've talked to Rick about this before because, like, you know, he understands social media. Like, he's not living in a, a, a cave. Like, he knows what people say, and he he hears what, what, what people say, and he understands what they assume. And his his point, and I, I don't want to speak for him. He can speak for himself someday, but it's just like, in fact, I won't speak for him. Forget his point. Here would be the counter argument, and I'm, it's not one that I'm subscribing to necessarily. But you know, Rick Stansberry's been a college basketball coach for a long, long time. He's never been busted for anything. It it is remarkable for somebody to have the reputation he has. Not remarkable, just interesting to have the reputation that he is that he has. Again, if you don't take my word for it, just go check on Twitter. And, and then, but then also be able to say, but where's the proof? But where's the, uh, where's the fire? And if, if, if I'm, you know, if he's so blatant about this and blatantly doing this, why has he never been caught in any way by the NCAA? That's a pretty interesting dynamic. It is, and those who are most devoted to John Calipari will would use similar uh, a similar defense, just because in the instances where Calipari's Final Four have been vacated, there's never been a case where he has been directly tied to the incidents that led to those vacations. Um, so I I totally get what you're saying. It is, and no, let, me, let me be clear: the counter argument to what I just said, like if you want me to argue with myself, the counter argument would be, yeah, well, it's hard to catch people. Almost nobody ever gets caught cheating yeah. recruiting. You know, which is true, by the way. Like for sure. every for every recruitment that goes, to, like almost nobody ever gets caught for cheating and recruiting. Like when like when you see people get in trouble. Um, in a in a spectacular way in college basketball recruiting, it, it happens and it but it's it's rare. It is so rare relative to how much stuff actually goes on. So if somebody was trying to point out, yeah, but Stansbury's never been caught doing anything, the counter to that would be, yeah, but almost nobody ever gets caught doing anything. It's very hard to prove this stuff. Yeah, without a doubt, it'll be it'll just be interesting to see. One, how good Western Kentucky is this year, because, you know, the guys he's bringing in are guys that will be on campus a year from now. So it's it's really, you know, come 2017 and 2018 when that program could make a jump to being a top 25 program. But what does he do with this roster this year? And if there's a lot of success, you know, we'll have a serious snowball effect. It's it's certainly one of the it's become one of the most interesting programs in the country because of this. And by the way, it's also a program that has a proud history and a good fan base as well. So it's not like he's not, you know. He's not starting over at, at some, you know, 
program in the bottom 200s. It, it, it would be a historically top 60, top 70 all-time program just by wins and uh, by how well it's done in the tournament and, and all sorts of conference success over the years. I guess what I find most interesting about it is that, um, again, Rick's a smart guy. And so he, he knows, uh, if only because everybody else knows, that when you are the head coach at Western Kentucky – and I, with all due respect to Western Kentucky, they do have a, a, a really, like, go look at the Wikipedia page. There's a lot of good stuff there. But they don't recruit like this, historically. It doesn't matter who the coach is. You know, Dennis Felton, uh, Darren Horn, doesn't matter who the coach is. They don't recruit like this, ever. And yeah. so when you start recruiting like this at Western Kentucky, to circle it back around to the point you made, when you start recruiting like that in football at Ole Miss, when you start recruiting like, and I've talked to Scott Drew about this, so I feel comfortable saying it. Uh, you know, when you start recruiting the way Scott recruited at Baylor very early on, people immediately think you're up to something. They don't take it at at, at uh, face value. In other words, if North Carolina secures a commitment from a kid, people just go, of course, it's North Carolina, whatever. Kansas does it. It's like, okay, it's Kansas, sure. Um, but when you are recruiting at a level to, uh, at a certain level to a school and it doesn't make any historical sense, people always assume, always assume, regardless of the sport, that you are cheating in some way. And so I'm just sort of fascinated by what that must feel like. And I'd love to talk to Rick about it. Um, I've asked him to like, if you ever want, I'd love to sit down with him and have this this conversation. Not about whether you're, you're doing it the right way or the wrong way because, you know, whatever. But, like, what's it like to know that if you accept a commitment from this kid, everybody in basketball is going to feel like you cheated to do it? Like, Because that is the reality. It doesn't mean that you did something wrong to get this commitment secured. But the truth is, when you do it, when you take a commitment from Mitchell Robinson, when you take a commitment from Josh Anderson, people are going to assume it's not on the up and up. And how do you manage those feelings? How do you – how do you – how do you juggle all of that? I just think it's an interesting thing to to be, you know, in, in, in college basketball, recruiting is is the biggest part of it. And to do your job well, um, and but but when you do it well, people are gonna assume that you're not doing it right. That must be an interesting thing to deal with. I would agree. And people listening are probably hearing us talk about old Mrs. Rise on the recruiting trail and Oh, yeah, by the way, either. they're about to get hammered by the NCAA. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and I'm not saying that that's – I'm not creating a total corollary between that and anything that would come down the pike with Western Kentucky. But it is just to, – to bring up a recent example in another collegiate sport, you know, Ole Miss, I remember – listen, I, I'm someone who enjoys college football. I would define myself as a casual fan. Um, but I remember being like, wow, like – Ole Miss, really? Like, they're really nailing, they're, they're bringing in these recruits. And, of course, it came with a lot of skepticism uh, within that league, within coaches in that league. And now, obviously, yeah, the, it's uh, that is the the hammer that is waiting to come down in, in college football right now with that program. So, in regard to Western Kentucky, it, it is interesting. We'll, we'll see what happens, and we'll see who else uh, Stansberry can get. I would think the story will get more interesting the more he's able to get in 
with five-star and four-star recruits. And it must be terrifying if you're another Conference USA school because you know typically in a league like that, and I know when, when Memphis was in CUSA and John Calipari was the coach there, it was just sort of like it wasn't even a fair fight. But um, typically in, in leagues like the current version of CUSA or the current version of um, the Horizon or the Sun Belt or whatever, um, everybody kind of gets the same caliber of player. And then, and then it, you know, the championships are decided by, you know, which player turns out to be way better than you thought or anybody thought. Like, who looks up and has a Isaiah Cannon? Or who looks up and has a Gordon Hayward? Or who looks up and has a whatever? Um, and then, and then like, um, and then who, who can outcoach another guy? Like, that's typically what it comes down to. Like, who has the juniors and seniors? Who found a, a, a two-star prospect that turned into a top you know, 25 player in America and, you know, who can out coach the other guy. And yet, you know, uh, it looks like Rick is going to turn that league into something a little more lopsided than that. In other words, um, I, I don't know how many conference championships he's going to stack. If any, we'll see. Um, but going forward, you know, once this first year is behind him, it is undeniable. He's going to have way more talented players than anybody else in that league. I mean, it won't be close. Without a doubt, my man. Without a doubt. So other interesting uh, development this week. Larry Brown. You remember him? Used to coach at SMU? Name does not ring a bell. Okay. Naismith Memorial. Just stop me when you, when, when you remember. Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Famer. Spent a lot of time in the, in the NBA. Spent a lot of time coaching college basketball. Only man in history to win a college championship and an NBA championship. Resigned in July from SFU, uh, SMU over a contract dispute. And is now uh, perhaps on the verge of coaching high school basketball in the Hamptons. Is this the most Larry Brown story ever? This dude's. This dude wants. <laughs> what's going on here? Do you, what is this do about? You, do you remember when we did the podcast right after Larry's decision to resign at SMU? And I told you I bumped into because we were at the Peach Jam when this went down, and I wrote a column and at Peach Jam in that afternoon or night, whenever. And somebody who Larry would consider a friend in the profession, like somebody who, if you ask Larry Brown, who are the 10 college basketball coaches you're closest to, it'd be, it'd be one of those guys. And a guy walked up to him and he said, hey, just read your column on Larry. Um, he, said, he said, let me explain to you what happened. He said, let me explain to you how this is going to go down. I said, okay. He said, Larry is always, and this is one of his friends, somebody who knows him well. He said, Larry is always just sort of, you know, he, he does a job and then he just decides he doesn't want to do it anymore. And he just, well, you know, for whatever reason. And it might not make sense to me or you. And it, in, in hindsight, might not always make sense to him. But in the moment, he's just like, that's enough. I don't want to do this anymore for whatever reason. And, and I'm, I'm out. And literally for decades, every time he's done it, there's always been a next job there. The phone has always uh, started ringing again. Might be an NBA franchise that wants to talk to him. Might be a college that wants to talk to him. But the phone always rings. And so for... You know, hell, 40 years, 40 plus years, he's he's just operated on. It doesn't matter if I walk away now because the phone's going to ring again. And he needs that phone to ring again because he doesn't have hobbies. Like this isn't a guy that goes fishing or likes to hunt or play golf or be around the house. Like he loves to, he hates recruiting. I've talked to Larry about it. Hated recruit. Like that's not just something people say about him. Genuinely hated recruiting, being on the recruiting trail. But loved being in the gym, loved watching film, loved teaching the game. And so what this coach told me, uh, one of Larry's friends, he said, here's, here's the thing that's going to freak him out. 
He's going to wake up in a few months, bored out of his mind, even though he's 76 years old, bored out of his mind, and wanting to coach again, and, and shocked that the phone's not ringing because the phone has always started ringing again. And you watch, he's going to, like, he, he'll either regret resigning from SMU or he'll just get back into the sport in some weird way that, that you, you wouldn't anticipate. And you fast forward to this week, and he's meeting with a high school athletic director just to maybe coach high school basketball. And the reason is simple. Even though he's 76 years old, more than a decade past the, uh, the, the, the legal age for retirement, he, he can't not coach basketball. He's addicted to coaching basketball. I think that's, I think that's basically true. Yeah, man, it is fascinating. I just cannot deny that. You've got a guy that is considered by some of the biggest names in the history of the sport to be on a short list of greatest coaches ever, despite the fact that he's basically been a nomad. Okay, I mean, he's had some stops and some success, don't get me wrong, but he just can't stay in one place. And now it's coming to the winter of his career and he's going to coach high school basketball. It's oddly romantic and at the same time uh, kind of sad. But if it's what he truly wants to do, who are we to tell him that he can't? Right. And obviously, if you're a high school and you can have Larry Brown coaching your team, by all means, you hire Larry Brown. It's just uh, it's definitely super interesting and and so very Larry Brown of him. I think you put it perfectly. Like it is on one hand, it's romantic, like the idea that this. I mean, a giant of the sport. Um, you know, I, I know Larry gets beat up a lot, you know, because he, he got three different college basketball programs in trouble and because he just would randomly lead jobs all the time, uh, you know, most recently, you know, the SMU situation. But when you're talking about the best basketball coaches in the history of the sport, like he's on that list somewhere. And if you wanted yeah. to say he's the best to ever do it, like you could make that argument. I don't know that he'd win that vote, but you could make a case for him. Uh, and so the idea that that guy with that resume would just, you know, at the age of 76, be spending, you know, hours per day with, you know, 16 and 17 year old high school basketball players just because he wants to teach them the sport, share with them all the things he's learned over the years. Like that is pretty like in a vacuum. That's pretty awesome. Like that you can romanticize that for sure. And then on the other hand, you're exactly right. Like uh, it is kind of also sad because you'd you'd hope that by the age of 76, or hell, maybe even 66, um, you just find other ways to, other things that you care about, other things that you love, uh, other ways to spend your days. Like the idea that you'd have to, you know, perhaps uh, coach till you die, uh, that, like is kind of feels a little empty, you know? And so like I, I can, on one hand, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a beautiful and awesome thing. On the other hand, it is, it is kind of sad. You've made all the money in the world. You've won all the games. Like, uh, enjoy the final years doing whatever. But what you find out is he doesn't really enjoy doing anything other than being in a gym with basketball players. It's just how he's wired, man. Just a different kind of guy that way. And, uh, I mean, I, I we'll, I, we'll see. I would think he's going to get the job. But I, apparently, you know, there's just a few hoops still to jump through. But, uh, yeah, just uh, a weird end note to his career and i can't even say that it will be the last job he has in basketball because we honestly like larry brown could be one of those guys that's just has good genes will live into his 90s and a decade from now he'll still be doing something <laughs> like it really that could be the case but listen uh before we get out of here i i, I want to ask you i want to talk to you about 
a column that I wrote for uh, for Friday uh, over at CBSSports.com, and it's um, it's about programs that were once you know dominant in the sport of college basketball and are no longer what they were. And I went through, and for a variety of reasons, and I went through and tried to find examples of that, like like schools that put together unbelievable, um, unbelievably significant and also lengthy runs in the sport and are now on some level irrelevant in the sport. And like not going back to the 40s, but like in my lifetime, you know? And I came up with five schools. And when I started really looking at it, it is striking how some of these schools, it's striking what they were relative to what they are today. And the schools I came up with were Arkansas, Georgetown, St. John's, Stanford, and Wake Forest. Check this out with Arkansas, because I think Arkansas is probably the most interesting one. They went to six Sweet 16s in a seven-year period from 1990 to 96. They were in the Sweet 16 six out of seven years in that stretch. Nolan Richardson, of course, was the coach. Went to the Final Four three times in that stretch and won the national championship in 1994. Like a top five program, undeniably, you know, in the early to, to mid-90s, late 90s even. And they haven't been back to the Sweet 16 since 1996. 20 straight seasons. They either have not made the NCAA tournament or have not escaped the opening weekend of the NCAA tournament. They go six out of seven years from 90 to 96 and haven't been back to the Sweet 16 uh, six then, since then. Another one was Georgetown. Check this out. They made 14 straight NCAA tournaments from 1979 to 1992 under you know John Thompson, Big John, of course. They went to six Elite Eights in that stretch, three Final Fours, won the national championship in 1994. They had Patrick Ewing, Reggie Williams, Dikembe Mutombo, Alonzo Mourning. Those were all college stars who um, went on to be top five picks in the NBA draft. But if you look at recent history, they haven't been uh, – um, uh, they haven't enrolled a five-star recruit since 2008, which is unbelievable to me. They haven't enrolled a five-star recruit since 2008. That was Greg Monroe. They haven't had a top five pick in the NBA draft in the past nine years. Or no, they've only had one in the past nine years. They've missed Otto the Porter. Otto Porter. Who, they, by the way, didn't play AAU ball, so um, I'm not saying it's skewed. I don't know if Otto but he, Porter he would might have been a five-star. He might have been a five-star recruit. Yeah, but he, that's, he's just a super rare dude who like was no. a – you know, clear top 50 player. Just he didn't play AU ball, so Gordon, he wasn't right. Gordon Hayward was the same way uh, coming yep. out of Indianapolis. If he would have, uh, if if he would have played AU ball, he'd have been a consensus top 50 recruit. Okay, so, um, you know, and they've missed the NCAA tournament. Georgetown has two of the past three seasons, haven't advanced to the Sweet 16 since 2007. That's like, it's insane to think of what that program was and what it's been recently. St. John's. Okay, they go to. I mean, that's uh, the St. John's to me is the ultimate one, just in terms of what they once were to what they've basically been since the Eric Barkley era. Yeah, let me share the numbers with you. Um, so from 1976 to 1992, Luke Karnaseka, of course, is the coach. Uh, went to 15 NCAA tournaments in a 17-year span. Made four Elite Eights in that stretch. Advanced to the 1985 Final Four. But how about this? St. John's, that same program that went to 15 NCAA tournaments in a 17-year span has missed the NCAA tournament in 14 of the past 16 seasons. 14 of the past 16. Now, what's interesting here, and I, I don't know if we've ever talked about this before, but when you talk to people in basketball, they'll say the what happened at St. John's isn't that Lou uh, Karnasek retired 
or you know that they made some questionable hires. They added dorms. Do you know that story? Yes. Uh, yes. I can't believe you were going to go there. Yeah, that's that's like uh, one of the people say that's one of the biggest reasons. That's yes, you're so, right. So so until 1999, for people who don't know, because it's pretty interesting. Until 1999, St. John's did not have dorms on campus. I don't mean athletic dorms. They didn't have dorms at all. It was a 100% commuter school. You could not live on campus. There was nowhere to live. And so the NCAA had rules in place that allowed schools to, um, that allowed schools to provide cost-of-living stipends to student-athletes who didn't have a dorm. In other words, if you sign with North Carolina, you go to North Carolina, you live in a North Carolina dorm, and that's just what you, what you do. At St. John's, there are no dorms. So if you sign a scholarship with St. John's, they would then calculate the cost of living in the area, which ain't necessarily cheap. And they could cut you a check for that cost. And everybody would get cut an individual check. So it wouldn't be like, what does it cost to live in the area if you got four people living in an apartment? No, it was like, this is what it costs if you need to live in the area. This is what it would cost for you to live in the area. This is what it costs for you to live in the area if you all live separately. So then they would stack all this money, huge money, like thousands of dollars. And then what you would have is either the players would live at home, pocket the money, or they would live on the cheap, pocket the money, or they would live four or five in the same apartment and pocket a whole bunch of money. But Lou Carnesecca for years and years and years could sit in front of a crew and and – and I was told, like, this is what he actually would do. Like, he'd write it on a piece of paper. He'd write it on a piece of paper. And it was big money. I don't want to quote a number because I don't know the exact numbers. I don't want to be wrong. But it was like, put it, write it down a number on a big paper, on a piece of paper, slide it over to the kid's family and say, this is what we can pay you legally, legally to come to St. John's. And then in 1999, they add dorms. So suddenly that recruiting advantage goes away. And it really does almost directly coincide with the fall of St. John's. Once that recruiting advantage went away, that school could no longer recruit at the level that it, it historically recruited at and never won again. It hasn't won again at the level it once won at. Yep, and I've heard that the, the dorm situation there isn't, like, comparatively to any, like, schools that would recruit against St. John's uh, that would have, like, true campuses. I mean, St. John's is is located in, in you know, a section of New York called Jamaica, and uh, it's not the greatest setup. Um, so... And the fact of the matter is, when it comes to recruiting a lot, not a lot of recruits are, if any, are basically sold on programs history beyond the past five years because their kids are looking at, can I get to the NBA? And if you've had team success with this specific coach, have you been good basically since I was in high school? So for the past four or five years. So the fact that St. John's was once considered like a clear cut top five program in the country for nearly a decade it just has zero impact on any sort of recruit in the year 2016. It just doesn't matter. It hasn't mattered for a long time. That's why, to me, because like, obviously New York City is such a, I mean, it's such a rich basketball talent-laded area. You know, whether you want the five boroughs, and then if you really just extend it out to you know the northern part of New Jersey, and then you get onto Long Island, there's just always talent there. But St. John's fall has been. I mean, dramatic, dramatic. I actually found out uh, recently, just as a quick personal side note, I went on a family vacation about a month back or whatever, and uh, my wife's grandfather 
was, I believe, now he's an old man now. He's actually, he's Karnaseka's age. He was, he was telling me something over dinner, um, and he's, he's aging, so his memory might be a little foggy, but I believe that he was actually in the same fraternity as Karnaseka. So he's a diehard. So every time I see him, he wants to talk St. John's, and he wants to know why the program isn't good anymore because he, he still loves it, man. Like, and there are people that are still, like, when if you go to a St. John's game, and uh, granted, I've only seen St. John's fans really when I've attended uh, Big East stuff because they just haven't been good enough to warrant uh, going to a home game most of the past five, six, seven years. But, like, they have an older contingent. Like, they are still people that are diehard St. John's fans that are septuagenarians. Um, so I don't think that the program can ever get back to what it once was, but, uh, to me, undeniably, if it were to be good again, like it would be exciting. And maybe that's part of it's because where I'm located here in Southwest Connecticut, but, um, it would be good to see, uh, that team in the heart of New York, like genuinely be like a top 20 program again. I just don't know if it can ever truly get back there. I'm not convinced that hiring Chris Mullen, which kind of goes a lot with that, you know, we were once really amazing, these kids never saw Chris Mullen play. I, I don't know if it's ever going to get back to that point. Um, I had one coach tell me if he ever got the job at St. John's, the first thing he'd do is tell him to, t- to tear the dorms down. Te- tear, yeah, man. Tear the dorms down so we can get back to be- If you want to get back to being what you were, you got to get rid of those uh, stupid dorms. Okay, so let's go through the last two real quick because I was fascinated when I looked all this stuff up. Stanford. You know, Stanford had a 10-year run from 95 to 2004. Mike Montgomery, of course, was the coach. Montgomery, yep. Went to 10 consecutive NCAA tournaments, um, three Sweet 16s, two Elite 8s, one Final Four, and four Pac-12 regular season championships. And yet, now, um, they've only won, they've only finished in the top two of the Pac-12 standings once in the past 12 seasons. Only once in the past 12 seasons have they even been in the top two. And the average finish in the past eight years, that's also known as the Johnny Dawkins era, uh, they finished on average in the Pac-12 past eight years, uh, right around seventh place. And Johnny was 66 and 78 in Pac-12 games in those eight seasons. To me, that was—it's a huge discrepancy from what it was to what it's been. Um, but that might just have more—you uh, know—everything to do with Mike Montgomery and Johnny Dawkins than it does anything else. Like when you're trying to project the future, it's very difficult because they, of course, got a new coach now, um, and, and you, you could maybe. Uh, uh, explain Stanford's fall to mostly irrelevancy just because they lost a Hall of Fame caliber coach and uh, and maybe didn't replace him in the best of ways. Yeah, I've spoken with coaches before. In fact, a, a few of them, when we did our uh, our poll last year, came to coaches when we basically asked coaches what the best jobs in America were. Um, I got, I think, three coaches gave me Stanford as their number one or their number two. There are definitely coaches that believe that at its peak, if you're able to, you know, with with its recruiting and its benefits and its location, that Stanford is actually a top three job in the Pac-12. Just got to get the right guy in there, uh, and it can be that. Uh, I I could see that, I guess, considering what Montgomery did with them. I mean, I definitely listen. They were good in my formative years of really starting to follow intensely and tracking love college hoops. Like Stanford was in the picture. I vividly remember. Um, what was it like 12, 13 years ago when they started their first 25 games undefeated or whatnot? Like they, they have, you know, the capability there. Uh, Jared Haas is the new coach. We'll see what he can do. I think that he can, he can find some success there, but I wonder if Stanford basketball over the next half decade 
can do what David Shaw has done because Harbaugh built out Stanford. Right. And then Shaw took it over and it's maintained that momentum. It's still a very relevant program. It's a program with sights on reaching the college football playoff this year. It could have a Heisman winner in uh, McCaffrey, who's the most exciting player to me to watch in the sport right now. So there are certainly the resources there. It's just a matter of can Stanford get back there uh, consistently. I believe that it can. Let's just see if Haas is the guy. I think the right guy could kill it there. Like there's no reason any smart, really smart basketball player, like you you should be, you should you should have an advantage if you're Stanford um, to recruiting that type of kid. Like you, there's no reason that Stanford shouldn't be great at basketball or great at everything because it's such an unbelievable school with uh, inherent recruiting advantages because of that. The last one that I focused on was Wake Forest. Uh, they went to 12 NCAA tournaments in a 15-year span. Wake Forest did from 1991 to 2005. Went to the Sweet 16 four times in that stretch. Um, and this all happened under first Dave Odom, but then Skip Prosser. And then Skip died, of course, in July 2007 um, from a massive heart attack after going for a jog outside of his uh, office on a track on campus. And uh, Dino Gaudio, like, actually went to two NCAA tournaments in three years, but that was mostly built on prospects that were, you know, planning to play for Skip Prosser. And then they fired Dino, replaced him with Jeff Pazdelic, and that didn't work at all. He never finished better than tied for ninth in the ACC uh, in four seasons. They fired him, hired Danny Manning. Uh, and I think Danny's good, but here's the truth. Uh, they went to De- uh, Wake Forest with the 12 NCAA tournaments in that 15-year span from 91 to 2005. They have not participated in any postseason tournament, not the NCAA tournament, NIT, CBI, nothing in any of the past six seasons. Like that's, that's, that's kind of, they haven't been in any tournament in the past six seasons, postseason, nothing. It's bad. You know, cause Danny's like, Danny, Bezdelic just ran it into the ground and Danny inherited a mess. And so the question becomes, can Wake Forest get back to being um, you know, a consistent NCAA tournament team. You know, a school that went to 12 NCAA tournaments in a 15-year span from 1991 to 2005. Like, that's a long time. If you're good consistently with multiple coaches for for a 15-year period, like, that suggests you're a good basketball program. But here's the thing. Um, I wonder if it's possible because the ACC has changed so much since they were good. Like, like Duke and Carolina, still strong as they ever were, um, but what's changed in that league is Tony Bennett has built Virginia into a monster. Virginia Tech has invested in, in Buzz Williams. Jim Laranega has uh, turned Miami into a consistent threat. And then they've added big brands like Syracuse, Louisville, Notre Dame, Pitt. In other words, I don't know where Wake Forest ranked as a job in the ACC in like 2004. But wherever it ranked then, that's not where it ranks now. Because Tony's built Virginia into something special. And it added Syracuse, Louisville, Notre Dame, and Pitt, which are all like, I mean, obviously Syracuse, Louisville are two of the best basketball programs in history. Uh, Mike Bray has Notre Dame operating at a high level consistently. And, you know, who knows what the future of Pitt is, but certainly Jamie's had that as a consistent top 25 program, you know, for the past decade. So I wonder, uh, you know, how much of it uh, at Wake Forest, the downfall. Uh, some of it is just clearly like they've made some bad high. Some of it's just they were unlucky. They lost a coach they never should have lost at a, you know, um, in in what was the prime of his career, um, and and so that was that was just unfortunate, like bad, awful, tragic luck. But they haven't done a you know Danny, you know not included. They they didn't do a good job making hires after Skip. It doesn't seem, 
And uh, so some of it's rooted in that, clearly. But I wonder if some of it's just rooted in the ACC has changed so much that maybe Wake Forest won't be able to get back to where it was. I think that's possible. Um, I, 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 I keep waiting. I, I feel like Danny should have a good year this year, but I'm not convinced that's a tournament team. Um, and with the schools you listed, GP, I would say Stanford is the most likely that's what I was to return ask to you. prominence. What's, what's the yeah. most likely one to get back to where to like prominence? That's a good word. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I agree with you, I think. I think it's probably Stanford. And I would say St. John's is the least likely. And it's, it's not something that, you know, I'm gleefully saying I just with what the school has not been with what that program has not been. I, I think there are just t- too many challenges there. I, I just find St. John's to be the least likely option to return to significant prominence because it's had plenty of opportunities. And really with what you laid out, I understand Arkansas has not made a sweet 16 in more than two decades now, but with how good St. John's was for so long and with, you know, we could have a, uh, you know, an Occam's razor effect there with you know, the most obvious uh, reason might be the actual reason with losing the dorms. I just think that St. John's has, has the, the most difficult hurdles, I think, in front of it. Um, but, yeah, good stuff. I mean, that's, that's definitely an interesting list. I'm sure there are people listening that might have one or two other candidates. But I think it's pretty hard to argue um, that those five would be a, a part of any cluster of, of programs that – clearly had a lot of success in them for one reason or another, just have not been able to get back on it for a decade plus now. All right. If you want to check that out, uh, you can find it uh, at cbssports.com. Shout out to Devin Downey. And remember, you can subscribe to the Ion College Basketball Podcast on iTunes. That's the best way to get the latest episodes as quickly as possible. So please do that. Thank you uh, for listening. As always, I'm blown away by the, by the idea that people listen to a college basketball podcast uh, when there's not a whole lot going on in college basketball. Um, but but we appreciate it, and we will be back next week. Till then, take care. <laughs>